0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My conversation today is with Audra J. Wolf, a Philadelphia-based writer, editor, and historian. Her book, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science, published by John Hopkins University Press, examines the Cold War origins of the relationship between science and politics. Science sub-concept, as politically neutral and dedicated to empirical observation free of bias, has often been at odds with its collaboration with the purposes of the Cold War state. Wolf demonstrates how an understanding of the differences between Western and Marxist science obscured the hidden political objectives. Scientists holding an apolitical view of science became unwitting agents of U.S. war against the spread of communism led by the Central Intelligence Agency. Multiple scientific and cultural institutions engaged in formal and informal cultural diplomacy, espionage, ideological-laden science education in undeveloped nations, and became activists for the human rights of scientists across the globe, thus expanding U.S. influence abroad. In the aftermath of the Cold War, the utopian belief of science as operating in the service of intellectual freedom and internationalism continues, even as it depends heavily on government funding for its existence. Here is my conversation with Audra Wolfe. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Audra Wolfe. Audra, welcome to the
2: show. Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Your book uh, raises some really interesting questions, I think not only from the past, but also for today, uh, in how we experience the ideological battle between science and uh, politics But before we go on into that and some questions that I have for you, uh, how did you come to write this book?
2: And tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, you know, when I started this project, I never thought I was going to be writing a history of psychological warfare. Um, I originally thought I was writing a biography of a geneticist named Bentley Glass. Um, And to understand why I was working on him, we should back up to say that uh, my undergraduate training was in the sciences. Um, I was in college in the 1990s during the period of the uh, Human Genome Project, and there was so much conversation about how scientists had a solution for X, Y, or Z. And I was really fascinated by this question of where scientists get their authority in American life. And in the United States um, in the late 20th century, it turns out that the answer to that usually involves the Cold War. So I had become an expert on science and the Cold War. And my first book was also about science and the Cold War, Um, although more about the science of stuff. It was a a different kind of book than than this new book. One of the people I was interested in was a biologist named Bentley Glass. And Glass was interesting because the narrative that historians generally tell about science and the Cold War is that scientists had to limit their political activities uh, because so many of them uh, received federal dollars. And because of McCarthyism, that scientists who put their neck out, who who put their necks out, basically had their careers ended. Um, But Bentley Glass didn't follow that model. He was uh, head of the Maryland ACLU for 10 years. He famously refused to sign a loyalty oath. He was involved in some uh, kind of civil rights work in Baltimore in the 1950s. Um, and yet his career thrived. He had a Q clearance. He was advising the Atomic Energy Commission. And I wanted to know, what was it with this guy? How did this guy get to speak out? How did he get to criticize the government and still have a thriving career? And to make a very long story short, what I realized was that he uh, wasn't nearly as oppositional to the government as I had originally thought he was, even though he had this 250-page FBI file Um, He was actually a really good representative for science on the international stage and the State Department and the CIA found him useful. And he wasn't alone. There was a whole category of scientists who were in some ways informal science diplomats who were involved in spreading messages about science and the American way of life to the rest of the world. And so I wanted to understand um, how that happened and what that meant for how we think about science and scientists and scientific authority in 20th century America.
0: So, let me ask you uh, why one of the things that you say is that historiography on on science uh, as a part of American soft power has sort of been neglected by uh, scholars who work on, you know, soft power and all the ways that uh, cultural diplomacy and those why has that uh, science kind of escaped examination?
2: I think it's it's two communities who are talking past each other. Uh, diplomatic historians have done wonderful work over the past fifteen years at looking at uh, what what we sometimes call cultural diplomacy um, and even covert cultural diplomacy. Uh, but a lot of that work really focused uh, really came out of scandals about intellectuals and artists and musicians in the late 1960s. Um, so a lot of this work about uh, kind of culture and foreign policy really focused on kind of traditional high culture. Um, and meanwhile, when historians of science have talked about diplomacy during this time period, um, they've been much more focused on science stuff, uh, really more the topic of the kinds of things I talk about in my first book, so bombs and airplanes and missiles and the space race. Um, but what I was realizing during this time period is that when uh, foreign policy thinkers were talking about culture in circa 1948, they didn't mean culture in the sense of arts and letters. They meant culture in the sense of a way of life, in the way that uh, anthropologists like Margaret Mead meant it, that uh, there were certain characteristics that uh, characterize a uh, nation's And that if these characteristics uh, were were pushed in certain ways, that uh, societies might develop in certain ways. And science, um, ideas about science and technology and power were absolutely part of those cultural systems. So the people who were um, thinking about how you would do cultural diplomacy absolutely thought about science and technology as part of culture, because that's what they were trying to promote around the world were these ideas about the American way of life. And science was part of that, so therefore, science was part of cultural diplomacy.
0: Now, when you're talking about science in your book, you're not uh, you're talking about the natural science, not so much the social scientists like anthropologists and psychologists. Is that correct?
2: Right. So the book itself is really more focused, uh, very much on biologists, chemists, uh, physicists, to a certain extent, earth scientists. Um, what's interesting is that social scientists were very much involved in developing. Um, approaches to cultural diplomacy and even psychological warfare. Um, But they're not really who I focus on in the book. That group of people makes uh, sort of a cameo appearance in uh, chapter three um, for a project called uh, Project Troy when the government was really trying to figure out how to do psychological warfare in the late 1940s and early 1950s. But instead of thinking about how you use science to develop psychological warfare, This book is much more about um, how you actually apply that, um, how ideas about persuasion, how you might incorporate those uh, into campaigns involving science, um, either as freedom or sort of as a path to Western development.
0: Now, I I know you don't really talk about this in your book, but uh, my understanding was anthropologists and psychologists and people like that in the social sciences were very much part of World War II uh trying to fight the enemy, trying to understand like the Japanese mind and uh what they were going to do next is that it but this is after World War two this is the beginning of the Cold War, and so you're you're talking uh you're moving a little way from that to uh, the natural sciences.
2: Yes, the story that I'm telling is about these other groups of people, but you are absolutely right that they are drawing on these ideas about sort of way of life or cultural systems. So, um, you know, often policy um, in in many fields, it's not unusual for policy to lag five to 10 years behind cutting, you know, cutting edge ideas. Um, And this is a case where the policymakers were really taking many of these ideas uh, from anthropology, World War II era anthropology and thinking about um, how do we develop approaches to um, you know ha- to extending American influence around the world that draws on these ideas about what cultures are like and how cultures change.
0: Okay, at the end of World War II, how did scientists view themselves? What w- what was their view of science, and how did that their view of science get linked to freedom? And how did it get linked to uh, the rising the beginning of the Cold War?
2: Well, you know, right after World War II is a very interesting period from about 1945 to 1947 because many scientists were um, very concerned about uh, the atomic bomb and thinking about issues of say, world government, how you might uh, have uh, global control of uh, atomic energy. Um, That faded pretty quickly in the face of anti-communism in the United States. And so by 1947 and 1948, there was really a rising tide of anti-communism in the United States. Um, But meanwhile, something very strange was happening with uh, genetics in the Soviet Union. There was a Soviet agronomist by the name of Trofim Lysenko, who had uh, effectively taken over uh, the field of genetics in the Soviet Union. And in 1948, um, his uh, theories of inheritance were uh, basically uh, made the party line by the Soviet by, by the Communist Party. Um, these were made the official views and people who didn't uh, subscribe to his views often lost their jobs. Uh, their, their research institutions were dismantled. Entire fields of research went underground. So this was happening at just the moment that the United States was really starting to think about psychological warfare. And so all of these trends really came together um, at once because there were a lot of American geneticists who had been watching the situation with genetics in the Soviet Union um, w- with alarm. This uh, Lysenko really culminated his power in 1948, but he had been building his power since the mid-1930s. Um, and in the late 1930s, some Soviet geneticists were actually killed um, that Most likely, that was actually just part of uh, Stalin's purges. It wasn't specifically about their genetic beliefs. But to the American observers, it was really hard to tell what was happening in the Soviet Union, uh, particularly in 1948. And so they assumed that that the worst was going to happen, that now that Lysenko was in charge of Soviet genetics, that an entire field was going to be liquidated. And this became a space for storytelling about what science was like in the Soviet Union, um, so one American geneticist in particular, H.J. Muller, had spent the 1930s in the Soviet Union. He was a former communist himself, and he was an excellent propagandist. Uh, by the late 1940s, he was an intense anti-Stalinist. And so he um, you know, was telling newspapers, this is going to be, this is the inevitable end of communism. This is the inevitable result of when you have um, communism, that, that entire scientific fields are destroyed. Um, so there's becomes an entire narrative about what science is like in the Soviet Union. It's controlled by the state. It's inherently political. Um, It's focused on practical accomplishments instead of basic research. And it's intensely nationalistic. So American science became the opposite of that. American science would be uh, objective. It would be free from government interference. It would be devoted to basic research, and it would be uh, international. It would know no borders. So you really get this sense of of two different kinds of science, a Western science and a Marxist science, Um, and these ideas really took shape during this time period.
0: Well, you know, um, I was very surprised to see the science of genetics, you know, play such a big role. I thought genetics, right. you know, they just it seemed so, I thought, okay, the bomb or something, but genetics, it's just something that you don't ever think of being that political.
2: Right. Were well, the chemists too, you know, one of the interesting things in this story um, in uh, chapter two, where I talk a lot about the uh, early science attache programs in the state department, one of the reasons that so many chemists were involved with that project instead of physicists is that um, physicists would be suspected of espionage because everybody was interested in learning about the bomb. Um, so in an odd way, um, all these biologists, these geneticists, these chemists, these chemists end up playing an outside role be, precisely because they're not physicists. Uh, they're not considered security risks in the same ways, and they're not, um, uh, people don't have an immediate suspicion of them in the same way that they did about physicists.
0: Well the other thing too that was very interesting when you d- described uh the difference between western science and marxist science. I never really thought about that. I mean maybe I should have, you know, that there was a difference, you know, you think science is science. How could it be, you know, Marxist and what does that mean that you have Marxist science? But you just explained it and and that and you explained it in your book very well. So how did how did science become Embroiled. Okay, you've got the CIA kind of forming too, and they're intel. They want intelligence, which it's amazing to me how profoundly uh, enmeshed they were in everything. They had their finger in everything. So, um, how did how did scientists get embroiled in gathering intelligence for the United States?
2: You know, the, these these ideas about science and its relationship to uh, propaganda, the idea that, that science knows no borders, that science should be inherently free, these ideas of science and propaganda were coming into play at just the same moment that the United States was establishing its first peacetime intelligence agency. And that, of course, was the CIA, which was established in 1947. So fairly early in the CIA's history, um, the folks who were involved with scientific intelligence realized that the best way to collect scientific intelligence was to encourage scientists to mingle on the international stage, right? Because a lot of what we need when we're thinking about scientific intelligence, it's not the kind of stuff that you get through cloak and dagger means. Instead, it's things like uh, what are the most prominent research institutions? How many scientists are there? How many of their scientists have studied in the United States? Which of them might be um, sympathetic to the West? And that's the kind of information that you can get just by having scientists mingle. So um, in 1950, from about 1950 to 1953, the CIA and the State Department were deeply invested in thinking about How can we create opportunities for scientists to get to know each other on this international stage? And so they, uh, you know, the the U.S. government was, in some cases, actively uh, creating opportunities for scientists to meet and mingle and exchange information um, and then be debriefed upon their return. Sometimes um, the scientists, sometimes it would be clear to the scientists that they were being debriefed for intelligence purposes, and sometimes it wouldn't be. Um, so this is a kind of a, a very complicated system that depends on on government agencies knowing when American scientists were traveling abroad. Uh, they didn't always have that information, so that was a problem too. Um, But I think some of the challenges in this just uh, relate to something that you said earlier that I just want to clarify about this idea about Western science and Marxist science or Western science and communist science. Both of these pictures of what science was like in the Soviet Union or what science was like in the United States, both of these are caricatures and exaggerations and in some ways aspirational. Right. So, you know, obviously there were many scientists who were conducting uh, very excellent basic research in the Soviet Union. And in the United States during this time period, um, a lot of research was being funded by the federal government. So um, both, of these, uh, both of these views of how science operates in the West and how science operates under communism, they're both um, exaggerations. Uh, that became, But they became very useful in propaganda campaigns, particularly in how the United States positioned ideals about science.
0: The other thing I noticed about the scientists was that, that oftentimes, like you said before, they were participating in espionage sort of activities or monitoring the Russians without really even knowing they were doing it. Their their intention for going to the Soviets and the, the intention of the United States government for allowing them to go were at crossways. I mean, they were not on the same page. And it seemed like there was a little bit of a, they were naive in a way.
2: Some of them were naive, and I think some of them were uh, intentionally naive, uh, not asking questions about who suddenly had a lot of money to send them to uh, certain kinds of foreign conferences. Uh, one can, can choose to not ask questions and, and then officially not know something, but you know, be very aware of the fact that you're not asking the kind of questions that, that you're asking. But I think this in general points to um, the, the broader phenomenon of how the United States was conducting so much of its diplomacy during this time period. Um, the United States came to rely very heavily on its private partners to do its cultural diplomacy, Um, even its overt cultural diplomacy. So, um, you know, maybe the State Department would give money to a private group to conduct an activity. Or in what we call covert cultural diplomacy, maybe the CIA would give money to a foundation that would give money to a different foundation um, that would then give money to a group of private citizens who could claim ignorance about the original source of the funds. the government was originally working with so many of these private partners um, in part for reasons of plausible deniability, that they didn't want to, um, they they wanted to allow some degree of freedom for individuals to uh, be creative in their response to the challenge of communism uh, without worrying about the blowback or the consequences of what those individuals might do. Um, But, you know, there's also an ideological component here in that if the message that you're trying to convey is that individuals in the United States are not controlled by their government? It turns out that that's a really difficult message to convey through overt, acknowledged diplomacy, because diplomacy, um, you know, by definition involves the government's hand. So, in some ways, the ideology that the United States was advancing had had really pushed it, um, pushed policymakers into a box in terms of what kinds of tools they had at their disposal. They really needed to be. Um, uh, pushing this idea of private enterprise, private citizens, private initiatives, uh, people operating on their own things. And we also bill.
0: have a situation, it seems like to me, that the United States government did not have an overall plan or what they were doing because the CIA is sort of going one way and the State Department is going another way in terms of, you know, what they're trying to get out of these foreign contacts. So can you talk a little bit about is, was, was there a conflict? Was there, a, there was no overarching like policy, overarching plan a strategy about how uh, this cultural diplomacy was going to be used, how intelligence was going to be gathered. That's what it seemed like to me.
2: Absolutely. And and the two other players that are important to put in the mix here are Congress and the FBI, Um, because both the State Department and the CIA were in some ways um, up to the same things. uh, But the State Department, um, it had to report what it was doing to Congress. And Congress during this time period was intensely anti-communist. And the FBI was uh, enforcing that. So one of the areas where you really see this play out is in the State Department. Uh, These science attachés, their job was to, uh, you know, to collect some light scientific intelligence, but also to uh, kind of smooth the wheels for scientific diplomacy in Europe. And to do that, they absolutely had to interact with people who were former communists, particularly in France, where many of the scientists, uh, many of the leading scientists were former communists. Um, And this put them at great suspicion. So, So there's a story. Yeah. There's a story in here about a scientist who... Uh, was doing this work and basically he was getting investigated by the FBI because he was attempting to do his job that involved talking to communist scientists. It becomes really hard to do that work if your job is to talk to communists. If other agencies of government are investigating you for talking to communists, so uh, yeah, there's there's absolutely a problem here with lack of coordination, people not being on the same page about how you promote ideals about. And the you world also world have world
0: a, you have a lots of uh, private organizations. That genuinely wanted to be in dialogue with uh, beh- with people behind the Iron Curtain because of just the cultural interest. They they really, they weren't interested in espionage. They just wanted to talk to people that were different from them. And those people inadvertently also get caught up in this because of the funding, right? It was amazing how much funding was coming uh, through these kind of bogus organizations and trusts and foundations who were really fronts for uh, the CIA. It was amazing to me.
2: It, it's, yes, it's an astonishing list of people. Um, at the same time, you know, I do think that, um, yes, so many American scientists were doing these two things simultaneously. They absolutely wanted to uh, build relationships with their colleagues in the Soviet Union. Um, but I think many of them were, um, fairly deeply aware of that, that if you were uh, involved, say, in an exchange program in the Soviet Union, clearly the United States government wanted to know what you saw in the Soviet Union. Um, I think most of them at some level understood that, even if they chose to tell other stories to themselves about, uh, and, and certainly to other people, about what the purpose of these programs were, uh, what, their, what their ultimate goals were, that it's, it's very easy to talk about the language of scientific internationalism, that science knows no borders and international scientific cooperation, they could be sincere about that at the same time that they could understand that those kinds of relationships Was the, was the U.S. government, well. like the
0: State Department, also concerned that if they use scientists and allow them to go over there and really get deeply involved with conversations, that this, our scientists would divulge uh, information to the Russians that the United States government did not want shared?
2: Oh, absolutely. And when we think about, um, you know, when we're talking about exchanges, of course, Exchanges are reciprocal. So it meant that Soviet scientists were coming to the United States as well. So particularly in the early days of uh, scientific exchanges in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there's almost a, a comical level of restrictions on where scientists can go in one another's countries. And so the Soviet Union and the United States uh, basically had a, had an exchange program that was based on absolute strict reciprocity to limit security risks for each of them. So it would be based both on things like academic specialty, like you could send um, three polymer chemists and uh, two theoretical mathematicians, and that's exactly who would have to come from the Soviet Union as well. Um, And then there were lists of cities that Soviet scientists could come to in the United States, and list of cities that American scientists could go to in the Soviet Union. And these lists, um, particularly on the American side, They're predictable. Right. So Soviet scientists often couldn't go to places that had big nuclear installations, but they also couldn't go to large swaths of the segregated South uh, because the Soviet Union had been uh, using the United States record on race. It's its record of racism and its Jim Crow laws to promote its own foreign policy around the world to uh, effectively to embarrass the United States. And so one of the ways that the United States tried to limit that damage was by not letting visiting Soviet scientists go to places where they could see Jim Law uh, Jim Crow laws in effect. So it's an interesting... Um, combination of thinking about both hard security, kind of secrets, so these military installations, but also uh, propaganda, not giving Soviets a propaganda tool. Of course, the United States could also have not given the Soviets a propaganda tool by attempting to address the situation of racism in the South. Uh, But instead of doing that, they uh, tried to limit um, uh, visiting scientists' exposure to that. There was a whole issue that that, that
0: that, the United States had to send a pretty prominent scientist over to Russia because they, otherwise, they would be suspect of being agents wasn't this wasn't this something that you talked about?
2: Yes, yes, so when uh, the science when the state department was trying to figure out who to put in these roles of science attaches, um, they really faced a conundrum because if they sent somebody who didn't seem like a qualified scientist um Other scientists, uh, foreign scientists, would wonder: well, who is this guy? Why should we talk to him? He's clearly just, you know, probably an intelligence agent. Uh, But if they but at the same time, they had challenges recruiting uh, actual prominent scientists to these jobs because they were going to be involved in uh, secret work um, and in some cases intelligence collection. What's interesting about this was that they explained, when they explained to themselves why it was so difficult to recruit outstanding scientists they in some ways bought into the same ideology that they were promoting. And they said, you know, we'll have a very hard time recruiting scientists to these roles because scientists don't want to be associated to the government scientists believe that science uh, has no borders so they're not going to work for us because we're actually um, involved in advancing the national interest it's this interesting conundrum where they're both talking about what message they want to convey and at the same time thinking about how the realities of what they're trying to do okay, undermines so that message at this
0: the sci- scientists among scientists at this point um there's there's a they're split within the, their own ranks there there's conflict conflict within their own ranks in terms of what they should be willing to do with the government and what they should be not wanting to do and their own reputations as scientists among their peers could be damaged by whatever work they did for the government.
2: Yes. Um, And I think this question of how close you can work with the government is really a live one. I think one of the places that comes across best um, is in the Pugwash movement. So Pugwash, uh, it was a movement uh, for international disarmament. It still exists today, but at its origins of the late 1950s, it was very specifically focused on disarmament. And it, it was originally created as a movement for nuclear abolition, that they were going to rid the world of nuclear weapons, and that scientists uh, would be the best people to do this, and that um, the, the, the scientists involved with it seemed to sincerely believe that scientists could achieve that goal most effectively if they worked as individuals unaffiliated with the government. Now, over time, um, the American scientists involved um, started to feel that they would be more effective if the U S government, uh, could be on board for their plans. And, you know, they're not necessarily wrong about that. If you're, if governments are the ones who own the nuclear weapons and you're trying to get them to get rid of their nuclear weapons, ultimately the governments are going to have to agree. So some of the Americans involved with Pugwash were reaching out to the State Department and even the CIA to figure out how they could best um, kind of uh, customize their message to make it more appealing to U.S. government officials. Now, meanwhile, some of the other scientists associated with this movement, people like Linus Pauling, uh, didn't like that. And we're getting uh, increasingly concerned that, these, that this movement was being co-opted. So the scientists who wanted a closer relationship to the government, who were basically hoping to affect change from within, over time, instead of arguing for nuclear abolition they got on board for a nuclear test ban. So uh, you could limit the amount of testing in the atmosphere that maybe not dismantle existing nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, people like Linus Pauling were much more radical than that saying, hey, we came here because we're against nuclear weapons. We don't want a nuclear test ban. We want to eliminate nuclear weapons. So over time, this group split. Now, in 1963, there was a partial test ban that was passed. Uh, This was important for limiting fallout, but it ultimately didn't do much to, um, you know, stop to to limit the existing stockpiles. And so Pauling and these other scientists had a deep falling out. Uh, Pauling was explicitly political, and he was explicitly making moral and ethical claims about the dangers of atomic weapons, whereas these other scientists who were willing to go along for the test ban who valued their relationship to the government, they were the ones who were making more incremental suggestions because those were the suggestions that could be backed up by science, not by moral claims, not by ethical claims. And so it's a really great example of what it means when scientists are basing their, um, their political statements, in this case, what should be the status of nuclear weapons, when they're claiming to base that on science as opposed to morals or ethics or other kinds of values. It shows how uh, the group that was able to, uh, uh, to defer to scientific expertise, they were able to use that to get access to power. Pauling refused to do that,
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Let's let's talk a little bit about the the non-communist left and the whole idea of Americans for Intellectual Freedom and Sidney Hook. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Well, so this was uh, these were organizations that were the American side of something called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and the Congress for Cultural Freedom is probably the best known of the CIA's covert cultural diplomacy arms. Um, so you know, I mentioned earlier that the CIA was uh, supporting a lot of private groups. Uh, many of these involved intellectuals, and this is the most famous. So the non-communist left. Uh, many of these were anti-Stalinists. Some of them had been communists in their youth, or certainly socialist in their youth. Um, they were interested in often socialist solutions, or sometimes more centrist solutions, um, but not communism. And the idea that that American policymakers became very interested in was that um, these intellectuals with the non-communist left might be able to appeal to their peers in Europe. So the idea was to show the possibility of a third way that wasn't uh, communism, it wasn't uh, kind of a full-blooded capitalism, but something in between. Um, And so uh, the CIA, via its vehicle, the uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, promoted any number of groupings of intellectuals, including some involving Sidney Hook, uh, to promote uh, American values in Europe. This might be uh, intellectual exchanges, it might be uh, uh, music festivals, it might be festivals of modern art. uh, But this was a a really interesting technique to to try to appeal to intellectuals particularly in Europe, but also across the developing world, um, that life under capitalism could be vibrant, (laughs) that you could, that it could be intellectually vibrant, that you could still have high art, um, and that you could have creativity, um, under these systems that weren't communist. Um, it, it, it's an interesting mode in American history and it's one that, um, that, that, uh, received, has received a lot of attention, particularly in the late 1960s, when the CIA's ties to these organizations were revealed. Uh, it, was a, it was a deep scandal that it required a lot of soul searching, searching among intellectuals about what it means to uh, work for the government versus outside of the okay,
0: government. Okay, so now, uh, you know, You at the end of the 1950s, you've got uh, the, 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 the space race going on uh, for space. How did the launching of Sputnik uh, really kind of up the ante for the role of science in the Cold War.
2: Well, up until the launch of Sputnik, um, science played a fairly low key role in a lot of these uh, cultural diplomacy efforts. Uh, a lot of the programs in, programs involving science as culture, uh, they were often led by groups of private individuals, maybe backed by the CIA, like the Congress for Cultural Freedom, they had several programs in science. And sometimes not, like American geneticists were very involved in campaigns against Lysenko. And they, as far as I can tell, I'm, I'm going to leave this as a slightly open question, but as far as I can tell, they weren't actually getting any um, funding from the CIA for that work. Um, but after the launch of Sputnik, science really moved to center stage for uh, U.S. cultural diplomacy and propaganda. The U.S. In, uh, US Information Agency, USIA, uh, they made uh, they declared 1958 to be a year of science. Uh, President Eisenhower's uh, State of the Union address in January 1958 talked about um, that he was going to be waging uh, waging a war of peace, <laughs> basically waging peaceful war um, through scientific achievement. Um, so ideas about science and the potential of science to change the world really moved central uh, to center stage. Um, in this period and a whole host of government agencies from the State Department and USIA, um, to the Department of Agriculture to NASA, all were thinking about how can we use ideas about the nature of science and the nature of scientific production in the United States to project images about um, how the United States is in the world and why countries particularly newly independent nations, should follow the path of the United States instead of that of the Soviet Union.
0: Now, by the time of JFK's uh, presidency, you've got a web, a formal, informal, covert, and overt operations with scientists involved at every level and multiple institutions. It's like really dizzling. There are just so many institutions, so many uh, different ways that uh, scientists are sort of embedded in in this Cold War apparatus, uh, but one of the most interesting ones that I saw was the science involvement in education, science curriculum that was being exported to uh, third world countries uh, as a, you know, as a stopgap for uh, the spread of communism, if they, if they understood, with, through science, you could teach people about intellectual freedom. Can you talk about the whole project of science education? And it seems like the the whole that project was in in one way very successful. In another way, it's sort of it wasn't uh, because what they wanted to give these third world countries was different from what those countries actually wanted.
2: Well, yes. Yeah. So the, the question of the science uh, curriculum reform projects, in some ways, it is the most successful story in the book. Um, chap, one of the chapters uh, tells the story of the biological sciences curriculum studies, uh, uh, BSCS, their work abroad. And the BSCS was tremendously successful in getting their books placed uh, across the globe. Um, I should back up a second and say that after Sputnik, one of the uh, United States government's responses to Sputnik was to fairly deeply invest in science education. So uh, by 1960, there were science curriculum reform projects, uh, domestic science curriculum reform projects underway in most scientific fields, from uh, physics and chemistry and biology to mathematics and the earth sciences. And most of these curriculum reform projects stressed what they called um, an inquiry-based approach to learning. Um, And the BSC has particularly endorsed that approach. Now, What's really interesting about the BSCS is that um, it had a, a, its director, a man named Arnold Grobman, was extremely entrepreneurial. And Grobman had a dream of an international empire for the BSCS, and he was open to really working with any partner who might be interested in, uh, in, in working with him. And in that chapter, I trace how over a five-year period, You know, the BSCS managed to develop relationships not only with its primary sponsor within the United States, the National Science Foundation, but also with uh, international agencies like UNESCO, with uh, philanthropic organizations like the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, with overt government agencies like uh, USAID, but also with covert government agencies, including an organization called the Asia Foundation, uh, which was, until 1967, pretty much a CIA proprietary. Um, the Asia Foundation still exists today, and I want to be clear that it is uh, it, receives, it receives most of its monies today from acknowledged government agencies, mostly, mostly the State Department. But from 1954 until 1967, it received the vast majority of its support from the CIA to do uh, development work in Asia. It was sort of like a cross between USIA and the Rockefeller Foundation that didn't have to report to Congress. Um, So what's interesting about this particular case study of these BSCS textbooks is that all of these organizations, these overt government agencies, these covert government agencies, these private foundations and international aid organizations, they're all sponsoring the same kind of work. They're all sponsoring uh, translations and adaptations of these books uh, to be local, culturally specific and kind of geographically specific. Um, and it was phenomenally successful, um, you know, in Taiwan, which is one of the countries where the Asia foundation was involved by the early 1970s, apparently they uh, they claimed that their books were in use in 70% of Taiwanese classrooms. Um, and the numbers are fairly similar in other countries. So the advent of these textbooks to these classes completely transformed the ways that, uh, biology was taught. It went from being rote memorization to being inquiry-based learning. Now, You're probably wondering, what does any of this have to do with cultural diplomacy? And it goes back to these ideas about uh, scientific authority, science and objectivity, and even lysinkoism. So it's never stated explicitly in these books, but... Of course, genetics is exactly the science where there are concerns that something has gone terribly wrong under communism, that scientists aren't doing science the right way. They're overly deferential to authority. There's a party line in in science. Uh, They're being controlled by the government. So this nature of inquiry approach that's being pushed in these biology textbooks is all about a different mode of doing science, where science is based on research, it's based on facts. There is no authority figure in science, that scientists are looking at the world and that they're drawing their conclusions from it. And for the leaders of the BSCs, they saw this as an explicitly anti-communist approach to education. It's a fascinating
0: right story. and it, but what's interesting too is that the these uh, countries also wanted they wanted more practical learning that they could solve some of their practical problems like clean
2: water and things like this right Well, some of them did. Some of them did. But, um, you know, many of the people who the Americans were working with were technocratic elites, many of whom had been educated in the United States, and many of whom were uh, fairly excited about the approach in these textbooks. So obviously, it varies from country to country, and particularly... You know, I I give an example in there from the country that was then known as Ceylon, where a scientist there is saying, you know, I don't think these textbooks are right. They're not particularly practical. They're very invested in basic research. On the other hand, uh, particularly in Japan and Taiwan, the educators there were very excited about using these books to uh, jumpstart their economies in sort of a a high-tech kind of scientific basis uh, to economic development. It's important to keep in mind that the educators who wanted to partner with these books were of course Western leading to begin with. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a fascinating example of how you can build hegemony with these technological elites um, in a way that seems really subtle. You know, And the most successful versions of these textbooks looked, they, the ones that were most successful looked the least like the American textbooks. As part of the adaptation process, they would, they would substitute in local ecology, local trees, um, for different populations, they would uh, change certain examples. So if an example involved the inheritance of eye color or hair color, they might change it to the ability to taste PTC. Um, so they're culturally sensitive in some ways, these books. Uh, but in others, they're all about uh, exporting the American approach to, to, to knowledge.
0: So now you've got 1967 and you've got the magazine Rampart who explodes this whole thing and says, whoa, look. Look what the CIA is—it's doing all these things. There's all these covert institutions. They're doing all this, uh, trying to contain, you know, communism, and it really fuels the new left, and it makes pushes scientists to really question uh, their involvement in a lot of this. So, can you talk about that? I thought that was a really interesting uh, chapter. Uh, the fallout from this exposure of uh, all these institutions that were all linked together with the government
2: yeah that's it's actually one of my favorite chapters in the book it's it's a compli- it was a, a very difficult chapter to write because it's all about um people realizing that they've been lying not only to themselves but to others. Um you know what's interesting about uh those revelations in 1967 is that they meant this that the secrets managed to be held for as long as they did. Uh, The CIA's covert cultural diplomacy programs depended on um, hundreds, if not thousands, of civilians having access to secrets that they probably shouldn't have had. Um, And it was only the cataclysms of Vietnam that really broke that consensus, and people started talking, and inevitably, uh, the truth came out. Now, what's interesting about science is that um, some scientists were very deeply disturbed by these revelations. Anthropologists, in particular, uh, devoted time at their annual meetings to thinking about what their relationship was with the CIA in the way that they talked about science. In most of the other scientific fields, though, um, the fallout was a little milder than that. There were many protests about the relationship to the military-industrial complex, but that tended to be about research projects involving weaponry, uh, not about claims to objectivity proper. But outside of the halls of power, there were other scientists who were developing much more radical critiques. Um, and one of the most interesting critiques was developed by a group called Science for the People. Um, and Science for the People said, hey, the way that we're talking about objectivity, that's mainly about uh, reinforcing the status quo. And so Science for the People developed some uh, fairly uh, sophisticated uh, Critiques of the notion of scientific and, uh, of scientific objectivity, particularly as it played out in um, the so called sciences of race in the United States, um, and they did you know fairly interesting community work. It's, it's an organization that's actually uh, coming back right now. They're going to be relaunching their magazine Science for the People this spring. Um, You know, many of the people who were deeply involved with science for the people in the late 1960s and early 1970s uh, went on to become leading lights in the field of science and technology studies in the 1970s. Um, And in an odd way, many of those folks, um, the scientists who were critiquing objectivity, often ended up leaving the field and becoming science and technology studies scholars, uh, leaving those scientists who really uh, deeply, who were really deeply committed to objectivity. They were the ones who stayed in the scientific fields. Um, and so when we see sort of a backlash to critiques of objectivity, in the, uh, particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, some of that has to do with uh, the, the, the afterlife of these stories about, honestly, the CIA in Vietnam.
0: The, uh, the other surprise, there are several surprises in your book. One of, the, one of the surprises was when we think about human rights, the first thing that comes to mind is not scientists. <laughs> and, uh, oh, OK. I mean, it made total sense, but it was like, that's not what we think about. T- talk about how scientists were so instrumental in forwarding the idea of international uh, human rights.
2: Yeah, well, so a lot of the Soviet dissidents were scientists. Uh, one can argue about whether it's a disproportionate number of them or whether it's, uh, whether rather that this is a historiographical artifact and that the uh, peop- that the dissidents who happened to be scientists were better at capturing the attention of the international state. And I'm, of course, referring to people like Andrei Sakharov. But Sakharov wasn't uh, the only one. Uh, the chapter that talks about the Soviet dissidents uh, talk- talks about uh, several scientists who-, who were in those roles. And You know, this happened at a period about 10 years after these critiques of the New Left and Science for the People. Um, Scientists in the United States were watching what had happened and they began to feel that some sort of response was necessary. In the same way that the human rights movement was growing in all kinds of fields, um, that was happening in science as well. And so some American scientists had been. involved in new amnesty international movements and looking at things like in uh, uh, human rights abuses in Latin America. And so they were ready and willing to listen when reports of abuses of Soviet dissidents started coming out. Now, where this gets really interesting is that their main leverage was over the uh, scientific exchanges that were being administered by the National Academy of Sciences. And so a growing number of American scientists said, we need to boycott this. Um, these exchanges provide, uh, uh, they back up the Soviet government. uh, They provide prestige. American scientists who go to the Soviet Union are discouraged from speaking to dissidents. And so it increases their isolation. Uh, This is a legitimizing program. We can't participate in it. But the National Academies of Science said, well, we can't cancel the program because that would be political. And (laughs) we can't have political actions. We have to separate science from politics. Um, so what's so interesting in this moment is that the rank and file membership of the National Academies, they bought. They had a much more sophisticated notion of science and politics than had been the case even 15 years earlier. And they said, well, yes, of course, this is politics, um, but these are human rights abuses and we have a right. We have a duty to speak up. And so to to, uh, to I guess, summarize the story, what happened was that the National Academy said, fine, we recognize that you, individual scientists, don't want to participate in this. We're not going to end the programs, but we, if you want to not participate, perhaps through a boycott, that's fine, but we're not going to end the formal exchanges because that would indicate government control over science. And that's not something that we do here in the United States. Um, But large, large numbers of American scientists refuse to participate in this. Now, what's really interesting about this story Uh, from sort of a moment of scientist political awakening, is that at some point in the proceeding, some of the scientists said, you know, we're talking, we're using language that the problem here is that Soviet scientists um, are being jailed, that they're being put in mental mental institutions, that their human rights are being curtailed. But why are we limiting this to scientists? Why aren't we talking about their human rights as humans, not as scientists? So that's kind of a much more radical action to say, you know what? We are humans, and we're concerned about the treatment of other humans, and we're going to um, we're going to address that as human to human, not as scientist to scientist. We're not talking about special rights for scientists. Um, you know, in the end, there was something to the specialness of scientists' rights, and that's one of the reasons that Sakharov had commanded so much international attention, because he was a famous scientist. And the way that he was being treated violated the international norms of scientific freedom as had been promoted by the United States during the Cold War. Um, it's sort of a delicious irony of that story.
0: So reading your book, there were all kinds of things running through my head that you don't address, but I figured you probably have a pretty good intelligent or opinion about this. You know, more recently, we, have, we had debates in science regarding, first, the, the battle over evolution in textbooks, Okay. Teaching of evolution. The other thing is climate change. And we've got now a president who is accusing climate scientists of being politically motivated. So, in a way, does your history actually support what Trump is saying about science being political?
2: Well, you know, one of the oddest moments for me in writing this book was in the uh, transition period uh, after Trump's election, but before the inauguration. Uh, The Department of Energy put out a request asking for a list of American scientists who had participated in uh, certain international climate change meetings. And uh, just for those listeners who aren't familiar with this, the reason that this involved the DOE is the Department of Energy uh, administers a lot of the uh, United States uh, climate work. But it was when I heard this, this was shocking because this sounded like Lysenkoism and it sounded like Lysenkoism, how it was actually practiced, uh, not the caricature of Lysenkoism. So this wasn't a story about American scientists being rounded up and shot. But this was a story that sounded like the U.S. government was going to be applying litmus tests and uh, drawing up a party line in science and scientists who didn't fit that party line were going to be excluded from the government. Now, in the end, uh, the transition team actually uh, dropped that demand. The DOE did not, in fact, provide the list of scientists who had applied to those jobs. Um, But it was this fascinating moment in which it certainly seemed like we were seeing a replay of the Cold War. But now the United States was acting like the Soviet Union. Um, You know, when, when people ask me how you talk about this in terms of politics, I think one thing that... The Trump administration has made much more clear for everyone is that there is no such thing as a science that's free of politics um, because the Trump administration's uh, poli- uh, politics and policies are so uh, such a bald-faced power grab that you can't ignore the power politics in it. But you know, the Obama administration was attempting to use uh, science as politics in negotiating the Iran deal. Um, it's not necessarily bad that they were doing so. But the idea that somehow um, there was no politics in prior administrations, science uh, in, in prior uh, administrations—I mean, that's simply not true either um scientists are, are people of the world in the sense of course the actions that they take have political have political motives uh, in general whenever people are appealing to objectivity they are um you know appealing to the status quo um, and we're seeing the administration do that in fairly interesting ways
0: well it seems to me like uh, has has have scientists today are they aware enough of their uh, their position that they have created maybe some safeguards or some questions that they ask themselves about the ideological control over the, over scientific research and we know that i mean a scientist has to decide what they're going to study and even in the choice of what you study you you already are having bringing some sort of value to 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 the topic right if you're going to study a certain if you're talking about disease you're going to study a certain disease not another disease that's a, that's a that's a choice and it's not neutral so I'm wondering, are scientists question, asking themselves these questions, or are they so fragmented in so many different disciplines that they really don't come together to think about how they choose what they study and what the, what they're servicing in those studies?
2: Yes, I think there's a much more vibrant conversation about this now than there was uh, two years ago. Um, you know, I had not yet finished writing this book when the March for Science happened, but I had I had uh, written the epilogue, which basically ended up foreshadowing several things that had happened at the March for Science. Um, you know, with the March for Science, some of the original um, sponsors of the March for Science were really promoting it almost as a uh, as a science advocacy event, um, in which the main complaint uh, of the uh, the the main demand of the people involved in the protest was basically science should uh, command respect again. Scientific funding should be restored. Scientific autonomy should be restored. That's a very different set of demands than saying science should be, science has a place in the fight for justice, that we need a more equitable science. We need a more just science. We need a science that's fighting for the people and not just for money to interest. Now that criticism ended up bubbling up to the top Um, so that there was a, a, a fairly, uh, vibrant and in some cases, uh, conflictual, uh, discussion about what the March for Science was about that ended up being fairly productive, um, not consistently, and as, as we all know, movement building is hard, and no movement, uh, no movement is ever uh, full of consensus. Uh, but I think watching over the past two years, many scientists have been listening to the critiques that some of their actions are, in fact, just science advocacy. Um, and that if they want to command the public's respect, they need to be thinking about what they're doing that is for the public good. Um, and so we've seen many more scientists actively thinking about how can I commit myself to the good? How can I commit myself to the cause of justice? How can I commit myself to anti-racism? Um, you know, that people are doing this work in a different way, that we're starting to see scientists thinking about how to use their power Um, to, to lift and to support as opposed to uh, just uh, advocate for themselves. And that's, that's a really encouraging thing to see. You know, there's
0: another complication that I just thought of, and I know it's outside of your uh, field, but it's the whole idea of um, the neoliberalism that, you know, you've got uh, a corporate control science, not just politically controlled science, but corporate control science where you can have a, conflict between uh, uh, finding the cure for a disease, finding a drug that you can develop and market for a lot of money, or, and, you know, big pharma and big government. I mean, this is, it's more, it's it's gotten very, very complicated how, how science is implicated in both political and economic systems.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, the thing that's challenging about about this book and talking about this topic, as with so many other things about the Cold War. These ideas about science and freedom and science and objectivity or science and uh, the idea that scientists should be free to research questions that they're interested in um, and that the government should intervene, should not intervene in their work. Some of these ideas are not inherently bad ideas, right? <laughs> and if they apply to everyone equally, um, they, they might be lovely. Um, the Cold War was this interesting time period where at the same time that the United States government was engaged in some extremely repressive activities, um, For the people who could meet the government's expectations of who was a credible person, which usually means white, male, elite, straight, um, that if you could meet these requirements, that you could often have much more freedom um, than you would in any other time, because it was ideologically useful to say that, hey, yes, we are living in a capitalist system, but scientists are still able to do their research. They're not controlled by corporations because that's not... You know, that wasn't the vision of capitalism that the United States was trying to promote. Um, with the Cold War o- being over, uh, the need to have that foil is over. Um, and so in some ways, we've seen a much um, harsher version of capitalism, a much more uh, sort of rabid embrace of neoliberalism um, than would have than ever would have been possible under the Cold War because of the need to show an alternative to communism.
0: And also, you know, you still have the problem of funding. Uh, it's almost like a science has to serve somebody.
2: <laughs> right, science isn't free. Somebody's going to pay for it. And that's part of why I think it's so important that scientists learn to think about how to speak about politics um, in a smarter way. Because there is no science that is free of politics. Um, so you might as well start thinking about what kind of politics you want to see in the world and articulating that as opposed to simply saying, no, 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 there's no politics here. And then kind of hoping, to, hoping for the best, because that's not going to happen.
0: Well, Audra, that is a very interesting uh, interview we've had. And thank you so much for participating.
2: This was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in another edition of New Books in American Studies. This edition has been produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?